0: What does it mean
1: to be made in the image of God? Stay with me. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Hello, friends. Welcome to Open Line with Dr. Michael Rydelnik, Moody Radio's Bible study across America. My name is Michael Rydelnik. I'm the academic dean. I'm also a professor of Jewish studies and Bible at Moody Bible Institute. And we're together live, sitting around the radio kitchen table, taking your questions about the Bible, God, God and the spiritual life. If you have a question and you'd like to call, here's the phone number. Write it down. 877-548-3675. Let me give that to you uh, again. 877-548-3675. Trisha McMillan is in the producer's chair. Bob Moreau is handling all things technical. And Laura Markham is answering the phones. Again, let me give you the phone number one more time. Now's the time to call at the start of the show. People always say to me, I can't get through, I can't get through. Well, this is how to get through. Call now, 877-548-3675. Go get your cup of coffee and open your Bible, because we're about to study the Scriptures together. I was thinking about how people start their reading programs at the start of the year. That was about seven weeks ago. And how they say, you know, I'm just not sure how to get anything out of the Bible. And so, what I've decided to do is for the next few weeks, I'm just going to take a chapter a week out of Genesis and pull something that you might want to think about and talk about from each chapter, maybe for the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We'll see. Uh, and then we'll see how it goes. But I thought that would be fun. And when I came to chapter one, I saw a common Question that people ask me, and it's one that really is something that really we should consider, and that is, it describes humanity being created in the image of God, and then the question becomes, well, what does that mean? Do we look like God? If God is a spirit, what does it mean to be made in His image? The Bible says that God is a spirit. This is what the Lord Jesus said: God is a spirit; He needs to be worshipped in spirit. And in truth, well, if that's the case, what does it mean to be made in his image? From Genesis, it seems to me that there are three aspects. I'm not sure I could ever just say what God looks like. I can't. But I do know that there are three aspects to the image of God. And the very first one is it means that we have a spiritual capacity. It means that we can have a relationship with God because we are made in his image. The reason I say that is in Genesis 1, where it says that God made all the animals, that the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind. And then it talks about the animals that God made, the beasts of the earth, after their kind. Not in his image, but after their kind. And then it says in verse 26, then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so the very first concept is, in distinction from animals, which cannot have a personal relationship with the God of creation, God made humanity in his image, and that's what makes us different from the entire animal kingdom, that what we can have is a relationship with God because we are in his image. And you can see how God interacts with humanity. Adam and Eve in ways that he doesn't interact with the whole creation. Does God love the creation? Yes. Does he care for the animals? Yes. But does he engage with the animals? No, he only engages with humanity. That's because we are made in his image. Every human being is made in the image of God. And therefore God desires to have a relationship with each one because we are made in the image of God. And we have this, potential for a relationship with him when we sin it separates us from god but god paid this great price he sent his son he died for us he rose again if we trusted him we can enter into that forgiven eternal relationship a forever forgiven relationship with the god of creation so very significant aspect of being made in the image of god we can have a spiritual capacity we have a spiritual capacity we have the potential for a personal relationship with God. Secondly, it requires us to have dominion over the earth. All people have been granted dominion over the earth. If you read Genesis 126, after God says, let us make man in our image, he says, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. There's the idea of God granting humanity dominion because we are made in his image. Think about this Uh, when it comes to dominion. He made all the animals, but then he gave us rulership over them. That's dominion over the earth. When in the ancient world they would take an idol and put it in a temple, they would call it the image of the God, and that one was there to represent their gods, whether it was Baal or Asherah or whoever it was, it represented their god and their temple. That was what the image did. Well, what God did is he didn't make us little gods, but he made us in his image representations for him. We are his representatives on earth. Therefore, we have dominion over the creation. I think that's a crucial thing to understand. When I was in graduate school, I still had the dog that I had received as a gift for my bar mitzvah. And he was kind of old. And one day we came home and he had gone down the back steps of our house. We had steps inside the house. He had fallen down and he broke his hip. We picked him up and brought him to our vet, who was a Bible-believing lover of the Lord Jesus. He was a wonderful vet, uh, besides being a great believer. And he looked at this 14-year-old dog about, and he said, you know, I think the time has come. Remember what God said. He's given us dominion over the earth and over the animals, and I think we need to make some decisions here. And so, though we would never euthanize a person, because that's God's authority, people made in the image of God, But at that point, we needed to put our dog down. And that was part of the dominion over the earth. And I thought that was a crucial way of understanding it. This requires us not just to have oversight, but to be good stewards of the earth. We need to steward the earth. I think that's one of the reasons why we need to be careful about not abusing the earth, not taking advantage of it. This is our Father's world. We are the stewards of it. We need to take good care of it. So first we have a spiritual capacity through the image of god second we have dominion over the earth because of the image of god thirdly there is plurality in our oneness huh we this idea of a, a human being all human beings are fully human and yet there's distinctions within humanity there's male and female you keep reading there in Genesis 1, it says, God created man or humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And then it says, male and female, he created them. So there's this, this one concept of humanity that these people that God made, human beings that God made, and male or female, fully human. But there is a distinction, there's plurality In that oneness, that one essence of humanity has also plurality, male and female. I think this is crucial because I think here we see a hint of the triunity of God, the plurality of God and his oneness. God is one. We know that from Scripture. And yet it says, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. There's, We know as the progression of Scripture, progression of Revelation comes along, we understand that there's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, plurality in that one essence of God, uh, plurality of persons. And the same thing is true. There's a plurality in this one essence of humanity, male and female. I think this is a crucial thing to remember. Dorothy Sayers once wrote a book. She called it, Are Women Human? I thought that is something that we she was addressing some of the uh, condescension and dis- disrespect for women. God has no such condescension or disrespect. He created male and female, by the way, binary, two uh, sexes, but one essence of humanity. So there's plurality in that oneness. It means that we need to always maintain respect for each other, male and female, because we are equally made in the image of God. Well, so what? If we are all made in the image of God, what does this indicate? Well, first of all, it shows that God wants to protect humanity. That's why he actually, in Genesis 9-6, establishes the concept of capital punishment, which so many people think is disrespectful. It is actually driven by the idea of respect for humanity. Here's what Genesis 9-6 says. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood must be shed, For in the image of God, he made man. So that's the very first idea. God wants to protect the image of God in humanity by saying that there will be terrible consequences for disrespecting it with murder. So great protection for humanity. And then secondly, great worth. Think how valuable we are to God because he made us in his image. Sometimes we think and rightly so that we are unworthy of the redemption that god has provided but that doesn't mean we don't have worth because we are made in the image of god one of the most important aspects of our lives is that we have great worth to god so much worth that he paid an infinite price to redeem us never think of never adopt that worm theology theology you know for such a worm as i instead because God made man, according to Psalm 8. And because of that, uh, we have infinite worth to God, great worth. Well, that's something right from Genesis 1 about the image of God. We're going to take a break here. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about your questions. So this is Open Line with Michael Ray Dunlick. I'll be back in just a moment with more questions, and we'll talk about your questions about the Word. Stay right there and coming back at you. Welcome back to Open Line. I so love being with you and studying the scriptures with you every Saturday. People have asked me, how, how did you learn to read the Bible the way you do? And I'll tell you, the first course I took in graduate school was Bible study methods with master teacher Howard Hendricks. It opened my mind, it opened every student's mind to how to study God's Word. and also showed how much fun it was to really study, to observe, interpret, and apply. Prof. Hendricks then committed that class to writing. It's called Living by the Book. That's the name of the book, and it's based on that course. And that is our current resource. For a gift of any size, any gift you decide to give, we want to say thank you by sending you a copy of Living by the Book. If you'd like to give a gift and receive a copy of Living by the Book by Howard Hendricks, go to openlionradio.org or call 888-644-7122. We're going to talk right now with Charles in Fulton, Alabama, listening on WFMT. Welcome to Open Light, Charles. How can I help you?
2: Yes, Dr. Rodelnik. This week I've been reading through the book of Deuteronomy in my daily time, and I've been reading the uh, CSB. And when when I came to the 13th chapter of the first few verses of that chapter, uh, you know, I was I was reading it, and it's something I've, I've noticed before in, in other portions of Scripture, but, you know, it was talking about for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and I was, was reading that, and I, I, I know the Scripture, and we know God is omniscient, but every once in a while you may have someone ask you a question. How do you, why does it appear at times like, well the way the author has it's been worded to make it seem like God is trying to find something out about you when he, he essentially already should, you know, already knows that what, what the answer is. Yeah. Um, how would you how would you explain that to someone? That's not mainly all I want to find out what, what how would it's, you approach that?
1: Well it's it's not unlike Genesis twenty two when God tells Abram to offer his son. Remember that passage, of course, the binding of Isaac. And there, after Abram does it, he offers his son, the Lord intervenes, and uh, he says, uh, Do not stretch out your hand, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Well, does God not know in advance that Abraham would not withhold his son uh, and then another passage i was thinking of and then i'll then i'll see if i can give you the the answer as i understand it of course you know that's just my opinion but i'll tell you what i think in hebrews chapter 5 it says uh uh It says, although he was a son, this is talking about the Lord Jesus and the crucifixion. Uh, Although he was a son, he learned, wait, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. How could that mean that the Lord Jesus Became obedient, learn obedience. How could he uh, be perfected through the things that he suffered? I think the answer is same thing, same idea as testing. That what was known theoretically has just been proven experientially. That's what the test is. It's not that God doesn't know. It's just that there's a test there to see if what God theoretically knows is experientially true. I think that helps us in respects when he tests us. Uh, more, God knew in advance, and he knows the end from the beginning. But it's an experiential test to show how true it is. Uh, I would give the example of my mom who always boasted that she didn't have ever have a ticket, that her driving record record was perfect. Of course, she never had a license and never drove a car. So the result is that, of course, she had a perfect driving record. But only when you drive do you prove what a good driver you are, not by never doing it. And so that's how God tests humanity. He knows the outcome, but he wants to, to prove it to us experientially, sort of like when engineers built the Verrazano Narrows Bridge, the longest, uh, uh, kind of bridge of its sort, uh, suspension bridge, uh, I think, in the world. At least it was when it was built. Uh, I would, I used to, when I, I was a kid in school, I could look out my window and see it going up. And uh, when I was in second grade, the bridge was complete. And one of the first things they did, it's a double-decker bridge, is they put all the cars that they could onto it to prove to everyone that the bridge can sustain that weight, even though the engineers knew in advance that it could, they would have never put all the people on the bridge as a test if they didn't know. But that's what God was doing. He was uh, testing to prove what he already knew to be true. Uh, It's an experiential test. Does, does that help at all?
2: It did Dr. Dredelnik. I sure do appreciate it. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for calling. We're going to talk to, lillian in chicago listening on wmbi welcome to open line lillian how can i help you
0: hi dr redelnik hi Hi. can you hear me
1: i sure can go ahead with your question
0: i'm so glad i got you today because i love listening to you anyway this is my question both my husband and i uh are struggling with this if only a few people find the narrow gate that Jesus talks about in Matthew 7, verse 14. What happens to all the billions of people who have lived and died without finding it? And also, how does this conflict with the idea that Scripture says God desires that all be saved, which is in Second Peter 3, 9. How would you explain that to us? Because we're struggling with that.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, the other option is that people who don't believe would be saved. What do you think of that option?
0: People who don't believe are saved?
1: No, I don't believe that. But how, do, how does that strike you? That's your other option. Of
0: yeah, of course, people who don't believe aren't saved, of course.
1: Okay, there yeah. we go. Okay, so no, no, I don't say that. But here, let me just show you. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The reason why the second coming has been delayed because it will come with judgment. So God is waiting. He is patient because he wants to give more opportunity because it is not his desire to see anyone perish. So he wants to give as much opportunity for people to be saved as possible. So he is not desirous. It doesn't mean... When it says he's not willing, when we think about God's will, part of that is his uh, decree. Whatever God decrees happens, that's the decorative will of God, the way theologians call it. But then there's also what I would consider God's desire. When it says that he is not willing or not, according to the New American Standard, not wishing for any to perish, it's talking about what his desire is. God's heart is for all people to believe don't you think? Yeah. He would look like for yeah. all people to turn to him. And then uh, in terms of the narrow path, yes, I think when the Lord Jesus said that, that uh, mostly when the message of the gospel is proclaimed, don't we see most people want to go their own way and not the narrow gate? Isn't that true? Don't you see that to be true?
0: Yeah, uh, that is true.
1: Yeah. But I will tell you this, there's going to be multitudes and multitudes of people in heaven because during the tribulation there will be great revival and there's going to be many 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 more people coming to faith during that future tribulation than you can ever imagine or i could imagine so there's going to be tremendous and that's why in revelation chapter 7 after the 144 thousands are sealed then it shows who comes into the kingdom and it uh I think the result of this are people who become believers during the tribulation. And during that period of time, it says in revelation chapter seven, uh, it says after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb so uh there will be a great great revival with multitudes beyond count coming to know the Lord in the tribulation period okay
0: Okay, so the revival is going to be during the tribulation, which will be... There may be other revivals.
1: I'm not limiting God, but there will be a great revival in the tribulation period. Okay?
0: Okay, and I believe that. I believe that because Elijah and Moses will be there to uh, witness to people, to share the gospel. There
1: there will be some witnesses there, uh, but uh, I wouldn't necessarily put it on Elijah and Moses. So... Uh those are, there says two witnesses. I think they will be in they will be like Elijah and Moses and the kinds of miracles that they do. But anyway, I thank you for the call, Lillian. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. Uh we're going to talk next with uh Frank in Boca Raton, Florida, listening on WRMB. Welcome to Open Line, Frank. How can I help you?
2: Yes, sir. uh, thank you. Good morning. My question is um in light of old testament prophecies. How do some of our, or most of our Jewish brothers and sisters, not believe in Christ as the Messiah?
1: Well, you live there in Boca. You have a lot of Jewish friends. How many of your Jewish friends and neighbors, uh, how many of them are aware of the messianic prophecies?
2: Well, I would imagine most of them are. I, to be honest, I don't. Oh, I've been in Boca. I just. Them.
1: I want to tell you they don't even know about them.
2: Oh,
1: they okay. are not well, aware. Isn't
2: it taught? And... Okay. Okay. I just Uh-oh. thought maybe I, I I'll, uh, let me worshiping. tell you.
1: I just want to. You know what? This is really important. What you're telling, what we're talking about here, Frank. I'm going to start. I'm going to hold you over, over the break before we do the mailbag. Uh... But first and foremost, it says in Romans 11, 11, that salvation has come to the Gentiles to make the Jewish people jealous, to provoke them to jealousy, to to make them desire to have what belongs to them, but but that you have now, and uh, what Gentiles have now. Here's what I think. People look at Jewish people and say, how come they don't believe the Messianic prophecies? And I want to say virtually none of them know about the Messianic prophecies. And I would look at my Gentile friends and say, how come you have Jewish friends and you haven't been talking about those Messianic prophecies with your Jewish friends? Now, some of you have, but many of you have not. You just expect them to know it. That's not enough. You hang on, Frank. I want to talk about this a little bit more. Uh, We're talking... Uh, We're going to come back with the mailbag. But first, we're going to continue talking with Frank in just a moment about why Jewish people don't believe in Jesus. We're going to be right back. This is Michael Radonik. Stay right there. This is Open Live. So glad that all of you are listening. You know, when I think about how much I appreciate uh, people listening to Open Line, I, I used to laugh when I first was going on the air. I used to say, "Only evil will be listening," you know. And then there's so many people who are part uh, of our family, and I just so appreciate it. A friend of mine uh, said that he listens with his kids every week, which is always a surprise. He says there used to be must-see TV, people talked about. He said open line is must-listen radio for him, and I really, really appreciate that. I appreciate that, everyone. But then there are some people who actually want to help keep us on the air, and they, they become kitchen table partners. They're not just sitting around the radio kitchen table. They give monthly to keep us on the air weekly. I so appreciate that, being part of the family in that way. And if you'd like to consider doing that, what we do is every other week, we send you a Bible study moment. That's a special audio Bible study designed exclusively for our open line kitchen table partners. And I think it's, uh, we appreciate it so much, I'm not trying to put any pressure, but if you're interested and would like to do it, here's what you do. Just go to open radio.org. If you'd like to give as a kitchen table partner to give monthly or call 888-644-7122. That's org or 888-644-7122. And we're going to talk to Frank for just a moment. Hey, Frank, are you still there with me?
2: Yes, sir. Okay, yes, sir.
1: so first, the first thing I wanted to say had to do with how many of us have told our Jewish friends about those Messianic passages. Most Jewish people aren't aware of them at all. That's the first thing. Second uh in uh, 1 Corinthians 10:22 it talks about that if if Christians go into pagan temples it provokes God to jealousy it it gives us an understanding of what that word means because Christians actually belong to God and if they go there it makes him desire what rightfully belongs to him and that's the same word that's used in Romans 11:11 11, 11, where it says that salvation comes to the Gentiles to provoke the Jewish people to jealousy or to make them jealous. It makes them desire what rightfully belongs to them. God did it by giving it to someone else, to the Gentiles. And so I think we have to be very, very careful to try our best to provoke our Jewish friends to jealousy, not to provoke them. If you look at the history of the church, sadly, most of our engagement with Jewish people has been to provoke Jewish people to anger them by persecution and assault, a violent assault. Uh, obviously, that's something that is not so today, but nevertheless, uh, it's, that's part of the church's history. we need to be aware of it and instead love our Jewish friends and talk to them about our faith in the Jewish Messiah Jesus. I think that would really go a long way to answering your question. I think if we I had a friend once who said to me, you know, if we prayed more, God would answer more. I thought, oh, there's a lot of truth to that. Well, if we talk to our Jewish friends in a loving way, I think many more of them would believe. I do want to point out, I I posted uh, two TV shows that I did. I, I linked them on... A number of years ago, I did this, but I linked them last week on our Facebook page. So go to our Facebook page. There's a link there for the two episodes, the two part story of my search for Messiah, how messianic passages convinced me to believe in Jesus. You may want to even share that with your Jewish friend. Anyway, I hope that helps a little bit, Frank. Really appreciate your call. And it's time for the FEBC mailbag. Uh, We're grateful that Far East Broadcasting Company partners with open line to bring you the weekly febc mailbag and uh what i'd like you to encourage i'd like to encourage you to check out their website febc.org they have a link there to their podcast called until all have heard it will give you a real insight into what they are doing to reach unreached peoples through broadcast and joining me right now for the febc mailbag is trisha mcmillan hello there Hey, Trisha, how are you?
3: Good, how are you doing?
1: Great. I'm so glad that you're here. Now, I'm sorry I cut into the FEBC mailbag, but I do think it's uh, so important that we understand about how to reach our Jewish friends and neighbors. So, Absolutely. Yeah.
3: And that's I'd rather fun. get a more comprehensive answer than the two minutes that we had before the break. So yeah. that was just fine.
1: <laughs> okay, great. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's go to it. What do you got for okay, me? Okay.
3: Our first um, question is from Kevin, who emailed, um, and and kind of piggybacking on Lillian's. Toward the end, she referenced the two witnesses, and his questions about the two witnesses referenced in Revelation. Mm-hmm. He understands why um, the biblical support for one of those witnesses being Elijah. He's curious about the biblical support for the other being Moses but you seem to imply that it was not for sure that it would be either. And so what is the biblical support, or yeah. why do people think that it would be Moses and Elijah, and what um, what does the Bible actually tell us?
1: Sometimes, this is based on Revelation 11, some people think it must be Elijah and Enoch because neither of them actually died. And so they think, okay, these are the two witnesses. Uh, second option is that some people believe that this is elijah and moses and the reason is uh that they are granted authority to do things they have the power revelation 11 6 says they have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during their days of their prophesying so of course that was what elijah did mm-hmm. remember Mm-hmm. And they will have power over the waters to turn them into blood to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And so they say, Oh, Which is like what Moses, Moses
3: did. Yeah.
1: And so it must be Elijah and Moses, but it never says it's Elijah and Moses. Basically what it's saying, it's taking the two great prophets of the old Testament and saying these two witnesses will be comparable to those two great prophets. And so it never says it's Elijah and Moses. I think there will be two witnesses. I don't know who they are, but they will be as uh, uh, powerful in their ministry as were both Elijah and Moses.
3: That's what okay. I think it is. Is there any connection to those, to Moses and Elijah being the ones who came, to who were at the transfiguration? Uh,
1: just because I think the very same reason those two prophets were there was because they were the most significant prophets of the Old Testament. And of course, who is the Messiah? He's going to be the prophet like Moses, Deuteronomy 18. And so I, I think what, what a threesome to be discussing things.
3: Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you yeah. for that question, Kevin. I hope that helps um, a little mm-hmm. bit. Timothy in Illinois listens to WMBI and was reading Zechariah 12:12, which says the land will mourn every family by itself the family of David's house by itself and their women by themselves, the family of Nathan's house by itself and their women by themselves. Um, he, he has seen commentaries that say that the Nathan's house is David's son, and he has seen commentaries that say it's Nathan the prophet's family, or could this be someone else's family? Why do people have an opinion one way or the other? Because the commentaries he's read have no reasoning; they just kind of say, "This is who it is," and move on. Do we know yeah, who I that? Yeah, it was Nathan my, is? Co-
1: my cousin Nathan's family. <laughs> no, uh, I do have a cousin Nathan, but that's not what I think it's talking about. Uh, I'm wondering if even I know the guy that wrote the Zechariah commentary. Yeah. In in the Moody Bible, yeah, commentary? that's why I thought this um, would be
3: a great question to ask him. <laughs> and,
1: and I'm wondering if he even mentioned.
3: He did not mention uh, the commentaries he read.
1: No, no, but I'm wondering. Oh, uh, if the if the, the, guy that the wrote, author
3: of the Zechariah commentary, uh, he, he
1: even mentioned that he
3: he yeah, does reference are, that verse. Yes, yeah, he talks about that verse.
1: Yeah, it begins with the royal house and includes the prophetic order, the house of Nathan the prophet from the time of the house of David, mm-hmm. from the time of David and the order of priests. And so the reason the author in the Moody Bible commentary says it's the house of David, that's royalty, and then you've got Nathan, prophets, and then you've got uh, the house of Levi uh, and the Levites, and that's the uh, uh, priesthood. So you have prophet, priest, and king lines all being part of the penitential aspects that take place there. So that I'm joking around with the essay. I know the author who wrote that, that was me that yep. wrote that in, in the Moody Bible commentary. I think that's why, because of the prophet, priest and king role
3: of it. Okay. Where okay. where I think the context then serves us well um to to see that um it includes the House of Levi and the mm-hmm. Shemites. Yeah. Is that how you say that? Yeah. Um, so yeah. that it includes the priests and Levites, that, that there is yeah. a more cohesive, um, yeah, uh, uh, the leadership. All the leadership lead- yeah,
1: it's, it's saying all the leadership of Israel will be in penit- penitence at that time. So, okay, that's it. All
3: yeah. right, well, thank you for so, that question, Timothy.
1: Yeah, hey, we're gonna take a break. All right, but we'll, uh, I, if I don't hold someone over next
3: hour, <laughs> we'll do we'll more next hour, more either questions. way.
1: <laughs> that's right. Hey, thanks for putting that, uh, Uh, those questions together, Tricia, and thanks for sending them in. You can always go to openlineradio.org and click on the link that says Ask Michael a Question. You fill out your question. We'll put it in the mailbag and hopefully get it answered before too long. Uh, That was Tricia McMillan. I'm Michael Radonik. This is Open Line. We'll be right back, so don't go away. in line. I'm I'm heartbroken about the dark days that Israel is facing right now. Hamas attacked, started a war. Uh, Israel's response is bringing all sorts of pressure against Israel. Uh, Rejection almost. Still, God has promised the nation of Israel and the Jewish people a fantastic future, Chosen People Ministries, one of our ministry partners, is offering open line listeners a free copy of their book, Israel's Glorious Future. This book reveals God's grand prophetic plan when he'll restore Israel, both spiritually and physically. To receive a copy, just go to our website, openlineradio.org. Scroll down till you see the link that says, A Free Gift from Chosen People Ministries. Click on that and fill out the form so you can receive your own free copy of. Israel's glorious future, and we're going to go right back to the phones now. We're going to speak, I'm going to speak with Allison in Charleston, South Carolina, listening on WUCDC. Welcome to Open Line, Allison. How can I help you?
0: Thank you, Doctor Al I have a friend who claims um, and insists that she believes in reincarnation. I have pointed out many scriptures that. Don't say that that discredits it, but I'm wondering how exactly would you witness to someone like that?
1: Well, you know, if someone is just convinced of something, you can't hardly say, well, the Bible says. It sounded to me when I, I'm reading your question here, uh, she uses the Bible to back it up. Is that true? Correct,
0: but I... What does she find in the Bible? I can't
1: find anything in the Bible that supports reincarnation.
0: Because I don't see what she sees. I don't even recall the exact scriptures. But I think that she's just sort of reading into things.
1: Yeah. Well, the first thing I would do is I would point out that the Bible says, inasmuch it's appointed unto men, and that doesn't mean just men. It's using it in the generic sense. It's appointed for humanity, uh, which is that's the sense there, to die once, and then afterwards comes the judgment. That's Hebrews 9.27. So there's only uh, one life and death and then judgment. And so I would point that out to her. The the other aspect uh, that I would say is I would listen really carefully to the verses that she cites from Scripture that support reincarnation and I would then try to interact with her and try and help her to learn how to read the Bible according to the context and more accurately. Right? You know, people sometimes have all sorts of weird ideas about secret, hidden mm-hmm. meanings in the Bible when we really should be reading mm-hmm. it at face value, uh, the mm-hmm. normative sense. Uh, therefore, I, I think I would help her with learning how to read the Bible as best I could. Uh, the other thing I would say is pray for her, that God would open her eyes uh, to see the truth of, of what Scripture says. Most important truth being that there is, there is no reincarnation, but there was one really important resurrection, and that is the Lord Jesus died for our sins and rose again, and she needs to put her trust in him. That's, that's what I would be praying, that God would open her eyes to that. Okay?
0: Perfect. Thank you, Dr. Rydell. Next.
1: Okay. Oh, thank you so much for your call. And we're going to talk with Matt in Hudsonville, Michigan, uh, listening to WGNB and probably making some ice cream right now, because that's what they do in Hudsonville, right?
2: (laughs) Yeah, they do that, yes. Hudsonville ice cream is great. Uh, You know, I'm I'm
1: amazed in Michigan, how people are, they won't, you go to the grocery store if you're ever in Michigan, and there's all the different brands of ice cream sitting there, and the Hudsonville shelf is empty people eat it like crazy. That's <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, how can I help you?
2: Um first of all, I loved your opening monologue. Uh and my okay. question is this, in the book of Ephesians, uh Paul mentions several times, five or six times, uh the term heavenly realms or heavenly places. Um uh, my question is why do you
1: think that is plural? Uh Hmm. I don't think it's uh that there are multiple heavenly places. I think it's just the heavenly realms where uh where God is, you know. Uh it's talking about positional truth uh that in the sense of where God is, these are the things that are true of us. I think that's what it means when it talks about in the heavenly realms or in the heavenly places. Uh, I don't think it's meaning, OK, well, there's heaven one, heaven two, heaven three. But uh, it's it's sort of a generic way of talking about uh, uh, that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Uh, and that's really even the Hebrew word for heaven, just meaning sky. Shemayim is plural. Uh, it's It's the sense of heaven is is just heavenlies. That's really all it is and that's all it says in Greek, by the way, in the heavenlies. So uh, I think it's talking about in the presence of God, this is what's true of us. I, don't, I wouldn't put too much stock in it being uh, multiple places. That's not what it's talking about. Okay?
2: Okay. All right, thank you.
1: Okay, thanks for your question. Hey, but, but before you go, you know what we mm-hmm. do in the heavenlies? We're going to eat Hudsonville ice cream. I'm convinced of it. But, besi- but <laughs> besides sure that, no, th- no. Think about this. How when God sees us, he sees us with every potential spiritual blessing in the presence of God. Uh, the the, the mm-hmm. positional truth is just phenomenal. Don't you think? I, 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 it just overwhelms me sometimes uh, how God sees us because of being in the Messiah in Christ. Thanks for your call, Matt. Really appreciate it. Uh, We're going to talk next with Geneva in Jackson, Alabama, listening to WMBV. Welcome to Open Line, Geneva. Go ahead with your question. Uh, We're almost up against the end of the hour, so go ahead with the question.
2: Okay, I was reading in uh, Genesis 5, it said that God created man in the likeness of God, and then I look a little bit farther down, and it says... When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. I'm wondering, was there a difference in the way Seth was born? Was he also born in God's image, or was that flame snuffed out when sin happened? What did? No. What do you think? The
1: image of God was marred obviously by sin, but it wasn't snuffed out, as you say, it wasn't taken away. The point of Genesis 5.3 is that God made male and female, and he made them in the image and likeness of God. That's what it says. In the day when God created man, he made humanity, not Adam alone, but all humanity in the likeness of God. And then he made male and female, they're made in the image of God. And when Adam lived 100 years, uh, his son made in Adam's image means that the image of God has been passed down from generation to generation. That even now, after the fall of humanity, the birth of Seth, the very same image that Adam had has now been passed down to Seth. It's uh, And the reason I know that is because in Genesis 9, many, many, many years later, I, it says, that uh, in the image of God, he made man, Genesis 9, 6. So uh, it's still true, but I think the point of Genesis 5, 3 is that the image of God has been passed down from one generation to the next. Uh, It's sort of like uh, if I were made in the image of my dad, right? My sons were made in my image. That genetic link continues. Well, the same thing. Adam was made in the image of God, so now his son is made in Adam's image. He, too, has the image of God. Okay? Hey, thanks for that call. I can't believe it. The first hour is over. I can't believe how quickly that went. However, we're going to be right back with more questions in the second hour of Open Line, so don't run away. We're going to be back again. If your station doesn't carry it, you can always listen online or on the podcast or on the Moody Radio app. Check out our webpage, openlineradio.org, has all the links you're looking for. The Bible study across America will continue in the second hour, so stay with us. Open Line with Michael Radelnik is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. See you next hour.